gonna try something a little bit different here at the outset of this show. I realize now that for probably 96 of the last 98 episodes, I've had this Jed Bartlett-esque desire to tell a story and somewhere within that story to have kind of like a parable that I wanted you all as the listeners to divine the link between the parable and the actual episode and interview itself. And I realize now that maybe a little less art and a little bit more matter is probably going to be appropriate. And yeah, this is the 99th episode of this show. I don't think that I personally can believe that, much less many other people that we've gone on about crit racing for 99 episodes now. So here it is. I'm going to speak plainly as opposed to all of the other ways that I've spoken in the past. We have this tremendous opportunity right now. Right now, in October of 2022, we have an opportunity to do something different. At the end of every year, there is always opportunity, but this year is special. I believe 12 months ago, we had nothing. We were in the middle of the giant sucking sound that came from the crash of USA Crits, the 14-year experiment that we believe to be the next stage in crit racing, in American road racing itself, that was gone. We had nothing. Now, this year, 2022, we have potentially three different crit series that are on the horizon for 2023. We have the NCL, we've got CRIT, I believe that's exactly what the acronym is, and we've got the American Crit Cup. I don't know many of the details of these different adventures for 2023, but the fact that there is three of them is something special. You couple that with announcements that we've heard recently, a trend that we've seen over the last couple of years of top-level American bike racers coming back from European teams to race in the United States. This year, Robin Carpenter and Kyle Murphy, both from Human Powered Health, have now signed with Legion of Los Angeles. That is two pro road team level riders who had raced in Europe, had done well in Europe. One was the national road race champ of the United States, are now signed to race with an American-based team that has raced in the United States for the last several years. You look at not just those two, but the trend that we've seen of other riders, of Kendall Ryan, Skylar Schneider, Shauna Palis. You look at people like Travis McCabe or even Justin Williams himself. Riders who have been at the top level of the sport enough to go to Europe, our premier league, and now have come back to the United States. It makes sense to me I mean, when I go to work on the West Coast, three hours, three time zones behind me, the relationship that I have with my family and with my wife, it changes, it, it alters. And that's just three time zones to Los Angeles and San Francisco. Imagine the stress and the strain on, on wives, spouses, significant others, mothers, fathers, children, all of the people that form your personal family community and living six or seven time zones in the future in Europe. Even the chance of bringing people over with you to Europe and living with you in, in Genoa or in Milan or in Nice, whatever it happens to be, there is a lot of stress. There's a lot of money. There's a lot of it. So I can see why a Robin Carpenter 
a Kyle Murphy, a Justin Williams, why they would come back to the United States, why they would come back to the United States and race. The problem is we don't have the infrastructure here in the United States as it exists in 2023 to financially support them. That's what this episode is largely about. Yes, Ricky Arnopel and I talk about his team, Project Echelon. We talk about their wonderful, lavish desire and love for coffee and for Formula One racing and for some weird French man named Philip, but whatever. The, the primary focus of this episode is to start having the discussion about the why and how of creating a legitimate professional bike racing community league culture system here in the United States. But first and foremost, we are not going to answer why and how in the next hour. We need to have an honest conversation of where we are. We need to have a conversation where we look at what is offered to our riders, what our system is based on right now. And then over the course of the next year and beyond, hopefully on this show, we'll explore the why and more importantly, the how that we get there. You want to know why I have faith that the United States can create a legitimate professional bike racing culture, aside from very simple statistical facts. We are the wealthiest country that has ever existed. We are the third largest by population, and we are one of the top five largest by land masses. Even if you exclude Interior Alaska, which is only 2% accessible by road, we have a wide variety of terrain and a wide physical space that we can use for bike racing. But that isn't even the why I think we are ready to do that now. For 21 days in July, every year, America is wrapped with the Tour de France and with everything about it. We have a hunger for cycling, a hunger for cycling that is so ingrained in our system that we will willingly watch probably the worst coverage in all of professional sports to enjoy that fix of cycling. It is so heavily laden with marketing and advertising. I literally once saw them go to commercial, come back, read an on-air ad, and cut away to commercial again without ever once discussing the actual race that was happening. We can turn that enthusiasm for 21 days of watching stage racing into something positive here in the United States, into something good where we create a legitimate professional place for bike racers to stay in the United States and come to. It's already happening in crit racing. We have others coming from New Zealand, from Australia, from Canada, from Europe. Let's give them a place to race bikes and a system in which they can survive and thrive. And then, and only then can we talk about having professional bike racing in the United States. My name is Rob Kelly. This is Criterium Nation, a show about life lived one corner at a time. We are a part of the Wide Angle Podium network of shows, the internet's only collection of independent cycling media. Go to wideanglepodium.com, click the subscribe button, donate, 
help support this content creator owned endeavor so that you can get actual independent cycling news, not news that's owned by the same people that own every other type of bike racing media out there. We're going to give you the straight information on gravel racing, criterium racing, cyclocross racing, e-racing, whatever the heck the slow ride podcast is racing. We will do it for you, but please help us with your financial contribution. This episode is brought to you by our good friends at Hammerhead. Hammerhead.io, the makers of the Karoo 2. I've been riding a Karoo 2 for five, six months now. I actually went away from it for a very brief period of time because I wanted to see if, if, if the hype that I had built in my head was all that it was, was all that I thought it was. And after one week, one week of using a different cycling computer, I immediately went back to that Karoo 2 because it is a superior piece of cycling equipment. It has everything that you need for road racing, for crit racing, and then some. And it's the then some that really brought me back to it. Like, for example, I run SRAM ETAP or access as it is now. And I can see from the start screen, which parts of my SRAM batteries need to be replaced. So it isn't going to catch me out one day in the middle of a ride where the shifter goes dead or my derailleur suddenly is out of battery. I can see right there on the screen, yellow, red, green. As long as it's always green, I'm always happy. That's just one of the, like, the little tiny details that goes with a ton of other features. Go to hammerhead.io, you can find out more about it. You can find out what you need. Use Crit Nation at checkout and you'll get something special. A heart rate monitor. It's what you need. It works with your whole system. It's perfect. It'll show you just exactly how stoked you are about it. We are also brought to you this week by our friends at Source Endurance, source-e.net. You've heard about them before, Adam Mills, Zach Allison, the whole crew of incredible coaches, nutritionists, all of the people that are there to make you the best endurance athlete that you can possibly be. Go to source-e.net, check out all their services, and when you find what you're looking for, use Criterium Nation, all one word, for $50 off your first month of coaching. So we haven't talked much about what we're gonna talk about today. We've got Crit Ricky, Ricky Arnopel, from Project Echelon in our continuing series, The Project Echelon Files. We got him for the entire hour because I think Ethan Crane is trying to escape the authorities here in the United States. No, just kidding. He's back in New Zealand. But is he really trying to escape the authorities? We'll have to get him back on and find out if that's the case. Monk is, is out there doing, you know, the good work of keeping everybody safe at the YMCA in Knoxville. Power to you, Monk. So we've got Ricky. We've got Ricky for the full hour. And you know what? He's not going to throw away his shot. He's telling you what you need to know, and he's doing that right now. Before we started today, we asked everybody in the crypt racing, road racing, interested world, all the fans of the show, for some input, some questions that they wanted to ask you. Uh, we got, uh, apparently you're really popular in New Zealand, so we've got a certain number of New Zealand-based questions. Wait, I'm popular in New Zealand? 
you are hugely popular in New Zealand. The guys from uh, the uh, Kiwi team that came up here, they want to know when you're going to come and race in Southland. I don't know when I can afford a plane ticket. Like I'll, I'll go to New Zealand anytime. If they want to pay for me to fly there, I'll go tomorrow. We'll get this out and I'll make sure to tag the project guys down there and see if they're, if they're game to bring you down. And I mean, I think their crit championship is like in, like in three or four weeks in Christchurch. You could be ready for that. Don't think I'm allowed to race that if it's their crit championships. Rules are meant to be broken. But I could be Ethan Crane for one day. (laughs) We look similar enough. I just can grow facial hair. The the most base level question or the question that I think is most appropriate for the very beginning is more than one person asked how you pronounce your last name. Arnapol, as if there was an E at the end. Like Vanderpol or Ivanapol. But Arnapol. Do you have a mnemonic device like Olenicek? No. We're going to have to work on that. (laughs) I have the, like, I never drank coffee. Segway here. I never drank coffee until I started bike racing. Uh, I don't know what my issue was. I was always up early in the morning for swimming, whatever. You would think I would drink coffee, but I didn't. I get into coffee. I get into bike racing, excuse me, and then I get into coffee. Why is there such a coffee culture, coffee connection with road racing? I think first and foremost, to to get a good, you know, a good bowel movement going in the morning. I mean, there's nothing better. But the funny thing is, like, I think it's like the Italian heritage of the two. You know, there's a, a connection with espresso and cycling that maybe runs deep. But for me, I was into coffee before I like raced bikes. I went to school in Seattle. And I became very much a coffee snob, like when I was there. And luckily, it lent itself very well to cycling. And then, you know, the team I'm on now, we just, it's getting crazy. We have like a whole Slack thread dedicated to coffee. And like, I'm taking videos of me pulling shots in the morning, pouring latte art, like all sorts of stuff. That's the thing. That's the thing. I'll be honest. The thing that attracted me to working with you guys this year more than anything was the fact that there was this entire Slack channel dedicated to coffee. You know, if you listen to to Peter talk about it, or if you listen to Zach Gregg talk about coffee, like when Brioso was at the team function in Winston-Salem that first night, you know, we walk in and yeah, the monk and Steven Vogel, they went immediately to the left over towards the bar to get themselves a beer. Like Ola Nicek and you, and I think John Heinlein, like sharp right-hand corner straight to the coffee area where they were pulling shots. Never heard that term before, pulling shots. Never heard that. Pulling shots? Oh, yeah. Or ripping shots, you know. Well, ripping shots is like the drinking aspect. Pulling shots is like the the machine making the coffee. So here's the question that I need to ask you. Road racing, crit racing especially, a very civilized sport. It is absolutely civilized. Uh, crits are run mostly at, in the late afternoon or in the early evening hours. Road races, uh, you know, the European, like legit UCI road races, they'll tar- start what, like 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock in the morning. So you can have this like legitimate civilized breakfast where you can, you know, casually drink your cup of coffee. Is this the reason why gravel racing is inferior? 
because they start their races at like 7.30 in the morning. You can't exist in a civilized society where you are waking up at five o'clock and, and going to a coffee shop at five o'clock to get to the 7.30 start for a gravel race. I okay. I I don't think you've done a gravel race before. Like five o'clock, that is pretty late. I think for steamboat, I might have woken up at like three thirty or four o'clock to rip a shot and make a fat stack of cakes, and then like you know not feel terrible at the six a.m. start line that I was on. It was so freaking early. It was dark when we were riding to the start. Yeah, I just find that to be unconscionable. I'm sorry. Like. People have been advocating that I should go and do, of all gravel races, I should do Steamboat. And I looked it up on a map. It's hard to find Steamboat Springs. It's awesome, though, I will say. I know it's awesome, and everybody says it's great, but like, I just can't get myself moving that early in the morning at 6 o'clock. That's why I need my coffee. That's why I need my coffee culture, and that's why I need my road racing. Yeah, and then there's, like, I think actually, you know, to juxtapose that, you look at something like Toad, where for 11 days straight at like 7 p.m., we're taking like three, 400 milligrams of caffeine racing. And then we're awake till like almost the time that I would have woken up to do Steamboat Gravel because I can't fall asleep yet because of the amount of coffee or like caffeine gum that I've, you know, it, it's just, it's the exact opposite. And then you wake up at like noon when Steamboat probably finished. This year, you did a stint in Europe. You did two races. I think they're in Brittany. Were they in Brittany? Um, well, no. The first one, um, Perenchy was in, like, outside of Lille, which is northern France, like, right on the Belgium border. Like, enough that we were staying in Belgium, actually, instead of France for the first part of the trip. And then we raced in Belgium and did, like, a handful of kermesses. Okay, so the Lille one, that's the Department du Nord. I actually, my mother-in-law has had these two wonderful women come and stay with her and like students come and stay with her from Lille. And I've exposed them to the beauty of cycling. They didn't know anything about it. Nice. I dragged them. I dragged them around the national mall on bikes in the rain <laughs> at night. So I feel like I have properly reintroduced two French Northern French folks to what proper bike racing weather is like for them. But you know, when you're in Europe and you're doing these races in, in the Nord or in Brittany or in Belgium, are you drinking coffee, like proper coffee, like American coffee? Or are you drinking, you know, espressos and lattes? So last year we stayed at like the race hotel, which was like a very small hotel, like owned by a family. And they had like an automatic machine, at which point it broke. And the milk in the machine spoiled. And then the whole downstairs smelled absolutely terrible. But like, that was just like, you know, it was so, so it came out of like an automatic machine. So it wasn't great. It wasn't bad. But then you like, I mean, you don't get cups of coffee anywhere. Like you can get espressos, but they just come out of like these shitty little pods and they're not good. They're like, absolutely. It's just terrible. Enough so that this year I looked and there's like, um, there's like a map of all the specialty coffee places in Belgium. And we like sourced them out. But this year I didn't even drink the coffee there because I brought my entire, my entire setup, my, my, my travel, my travel coffee setup. So Carrie Werner, who has been mentioned on this show more times than should be legally allowed uh, for him being a, a gravel racer, but, or a cross racer, depending on the year. But he introduced me to the setup. 
So there's a a collapsible pour over kit that's got the burr grinder. It's a hand burr grinder. And there's a little tiny scale, a digital scale that folds out and you can get everything measured precisely. And you got to use the number two filter because if you don't use the number two paper filter, what's the point in life? Is that the kit that you brought? No, that's amateur hour. Um, oh. I'm just kidding. It's probably fine. But when I do anything, I do it in a very extreme focused way. So when I was researching a grinder, it took me probably at least a month to pick the grinder out that I wanted. So I have a grinder that is a very high quality grinder that it, I can really dial it in. And then I do an AeroPress because for travel, I think it's easier and I don't want to have to bang on a pour over and blah, blah, blah. But you know, I mean, my hand grinder, the thing is, is special. When I brought it through the airport, it pretty much looks like a pipe bomb. So they pulled it out in security. And obviously I think they figured out really quickly that it wasn't a pipe bomb. But the thing is pretty spectacular and it makes pretty darn good coffee and AeroPress is just, it's consistent. So we had Brioso there, like, I think four of us brought our coffee setups, like Peter's in the freaking tiny kitchen in France telling us about the blueberry tasting notes that he probably can't taste. And um, (laughs) I'm just kidding. But no, I mean, we, um, I no longer leave things out of my control when it comes to coffee when we go to Europe, you know, as many things as I can keep consistent. I will. And the coffee for starting the day is like essential. What is it about American coffee? Like a good classic cup of black coffee. What is it to you that is so special about that coffee that you're willing to carry things over to Europe with you or you're willing to drive around Wisconsin with your own setup? Well, I mean, there is classic (laughs) black American coffee, which like diner, well, diner coffee has like a time and place. I actually really like like shitty diner coffee every once in a while, but like, you know, Briosa is like some, some high level stuff right there. You know, like it's almost like at some point drinking tea just because of how delicate the coffee is. But I think it's like anything that you get really into like beer or wine or something like that. They're like, it, <laughs> maybe it doesn't even taste good. Like, I don't even know at this point if coffee really tastes that good or if I've just like become so addicted to it that like those senses has, have like been awakened in me. And I like now just can like take down, you know, whatever. And then when I have this really, really nice stuff, it feels like a big treat. And, but I really do think it's just like a part of my routine. Like I think routine is everything, you know, not just like as a cyclist, but just like in life, something that just kind of brings you joy in the morning. And I literally go to sleep sometimes excited for having coffee in the morning. I'm right there with you. That wasn't a question that I intended on asking, but I am right there with you a hundred percent that like when I get done with the cup of coffee or the mug or whatever it happens to be, I'm like, I really want another one, but I know the bad result that will happen when I have that next cup of coffee, you know, like N plus one for the number of bikes you should have, you know, N plus one for me with coffee is always going to end up with me being like, jittery bouncing around the house like a five-year-old who's had two who's been like freebasing sugar well the the problem really arose when the team starting with zimmer zimmer was the first to get like a nice espresso machine and then i followed suit quickly after and then peter and then dave and then isaiah like everyone got so like when you first get an espresso machine you're just so excited and it's so easy that you're just like pop 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 just pulling shots and my biggest thing was I really wanted to learn latte art and like get really good at it. But the only way to do it is to continuously pull shots and essentially like make 
lattes or cappuccinos. So for the first few weeks, I must have been having five coffees like a day. And then I finally was like, this is out of control. Like my anxiety is like through the roof. So I switched to decaf and still there was just a lot of coffee at that point. There was a lot, a lot of coffee and a lot of milk. But once you get an espresso machine, you realize how easy and accessible it is to have coffee very quickly that tastes good. Then your game is just elevated to a new level. Yeah, I feel like that with uh, cookies as well. What's your favorite cookie? I, I love a very simple chocolate chip cookie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just a basic chocolate chip cookie do one do the basics and do it right it's kind of like my wardrobe you start with a basic navy blue charcoal black suit and you do the very basic things and then you start to embellish you start to add and then the next thing you know you've got a peach colored shirt you know like and you're the guy in court who might get yelled at by the judge because you're a little too ostentatious with your maroon colored suit okay so let's Let's shift it here a little bit. We, you know, talking about the racing in Europe, was it good to be back racing road races in Europe? Yeah. Like knowing what I was going to get into this time, like having done both the races last year, it was way less daunting and like figuring out all the very small intricacies of being in Europe and, and getting things to make you comfortable. Like it was, it was way more exciting. And like, I didn't get sick, you know, like week one this time. So that was a plus. And Brittany rains like all the time. It rained every day we were there last year. It never didn't rain. It was fucking miserable. And this year they're in a terrible drought, which is not good, but it didn't rain once and it was warm and amazing. So it was different and we did better. And, um, yeah, yeah. Not having to do cobbles in the rain is pretty sweet. What was the atmospherics like, like the fans, the crowds, the towns, the places that you went to, you know, did they one care that you guys were there? Oh, a hundred percent. Oh my gosh. Our boy, Phil, Philip, Philip came up to us. Philip is a photographer, this old dude, and he's super nice, very French. And he gave us, well, okay. Actually, I need to step back. The thing when you go to Europe is that everyone takes photos of you and puts them like in their collections, like Pokemon cards, but for like amateur cyclists and they put them in like a binder and you sign them. It's totally bizarre. And it feels, it feels very weird for like a 60 year old to be taking like, you know, a young boy's photo, (laughs) but you know, it's really endearing and it's a part of their culture. Okay. But so like Philip had taken photos of us the year prior and then printed them and brought photos to all of us and gave them to us. And then we signed the other ones he took. And then he took a photo again. The, the not fun part is that like, you'll be like peeing in a bush and some dude like, is like, Hey, can I get your photo? And you're like, get the, get out of here. Like it, it like never stops. And you're like at the start line and dudes are like, can you take your jacket off for the photo? And you're like, no, I'm freezing. Like go away. But it's a part of their culture and like you have to do it. Like some dude brought Tyler a card from when he was on Avola like three years ago. It's it's really funny. And when you haven't done it before, I'm sure you like you feel like a superstar and then you realize that these dudes do it for everyone. But there is something to being a token American. They came into an interview with us, but no one speaks. I mean, I speak a little bit of French. And so I exhausted the amount of French and they were very impressed with what I knew, but I basically repeated that I was happy that it wasn't raining like over and over. And they were like, Oh, that's great. Like, wow, 
he speaks French. And- compare that. Well, compare and contrast that to Redlands, Green Mountain Stage Race, Gila, Valley of the Sun, all the stage races and road races that you did in the United States this year. You know, what was the difference? Oh, like, I feel like, I mean, it is such a weird culture part in France and Belgium. I mean, like, we did this, like, a bigger kermesse um, in Lichtenveld. And that one was like, it's just like a weekend event. It's like, it's like going to a minor league baseball game where, like, there's, like, salted herrings and beer that you can just munch on. Like, I think, uh, yeah, like, our mechanic and our swanee got a bunch of salted fish. And, like, people are betting on you and stuff. Like, it, it's wild. Like, you go and get your number in a bar and everyone's smoking in the bar. Like everyone's old in Belgium too. Like, and there's old ladies. Yeah. Like there's a betting board and this happened last year. I think I had number 270 or something. And these numbers are like 3000 years old. Like Tom Boone and probably had the same number I did when he was like 13. And so I've got these numbers on and I walk out of the bar and these three ladies at the betting board literally look at me, point at me, laugh, and then turn back to the betting board as if like, they probably shorted me and were like, that guy's going to fucking lose. I can tell you that much. Like put $10,000 on that guy losing. Like that was probably them, but it's so much fun. And then you do like the bigger UCI races. And I mean, they're not bigger. They're like, you know, big compared to a lot of the stuff we do, but they're still smaller races in very remote parts of the country. And they finish in these towns that are probably only, you know, four or 500 people. So like all those people are obviously there and they're having a great time, but they've also probably watched the race for the last 200 years. And then you go to something like um, like Brady Street at Toad this year. And I always talk about Toad because I haven't done it in so long and it was so much fun. But like Brady Street was like literally packed wall to wall with people. It was only a 1K crit, but it was absolutely outrageous. And so, I mean, I think the hype in a lot of the crits we do is like a lot higher just because like that's our spectacle and they're smaller and like they're in city centers where you can get people there. And then you go to Europe and it's just such a culture thing that it just seems very normal and people are not quite as stoked just because, like I said, they've seen this race like a thousand times. So it's different, um, but both are cool in different ways. Is there anything specific about the roads that you're riding on in in France and in Europe or, you know, the way that the infrastructure is set up that we can't replicate that here you you i mean you know like go to peoria illinois the middle of the country you know replicate it yeah in peoria illinois there's probably not 12 metal pylons sticking out of the ground that they didn't tell you about in the race bible or a town where the road goes down to like a single bike path goat path width or like (laughs) the turn that they didn't tell you about like that's the wild thing about europe is that like the road furniture, like they always talk about it in, you know, like the big world tour races, but it's completely out of control. (laughs) And I'm sure it's been doing a great job of keeping traffic in control for however long. But like when you throw like 200 nervous cyclists down the road and they're everywhere. And that literally did happen. We were going into the circuit of the hardest race I've ever done in my life in, um, in Cresbray. And there was these metal poles just sticking out of the ground and no one saw them except the six dudes right in the front. And then some Irish kid racked himself on it and yeeted himself like 20 feet. And (laughs) um, there's always just bizarre stuff like that. I mean, the funniest is when team cars get stuck 
in the middle of the pack. Like there's just a car that everyone is surrounded. And then we go into a little town. I saw, I saw some French team car blow out all four wheels because he had to mount a curb to not kill the entire pack. And it's just like wild stuff like that. That's why it's so stressful all day. You like never switch off. You're always like trying to get farther to the front and then you're always avoiding crazy stuff and the roads are narrow. And Totally not on my schedule here, but like the thing that bothers me, and we've been addressing the environmental impact of bike racing. You know, like when you do these massive UCI races, there's a caravan like three miles long of diesel cars belching, you know, exhaust into the atmosphere with like 500 bikes on top of it. Like that's just part of the culture for road racing. You know, in crit racing, we all come to one place and we've got a pit, you know, that makes it so much more environmentally, I, I would argue, friendly. But the thing that drives me nuts is that the team director who is on the radio giving direction and instruction and getting input from different people and and dishing out information both directly out the window and also on the radio to everybody who's listening. That's the same guy who's driving the stick shift car. (laughs) Distracted driving may be a problem. Yeah. And he's probably eating like a hoagie at the same time. (laughs) He's driving with his knees trying to hit the clutch, but he's got a salami sandwich in his hands. I, I just, I wonder if that, like, uh, what is your opinion on the race radio thing? Do you think that road racing needs it? I don't care. Don't don't tell my director. I take that thing out half the time just because it bothers, it, it bothers my ears, so I hate having them in. But no, that being said, there has been some crucial times where I've been very happy that I've had a radio. And there's been other times where I'm like, yo, this thing is completely useless. Um, but I've avoided crashes because of a radio before. And I've also taken the radio out probably... 90% of the time. Let's talk a little bit here about one of the questions that we got asked, uh, you know, which famously involves tattoos. And you have more than one tattoo. I I have one tattoo. Is it a tramp stamp? Yeah, it totally is. Uh, it's a swimming tramp stamp. So it's on the front side. But, um, you know, when you've got one, you can count the one and be like, okay, I got one tattoo. When you have as many as you do, you start to have to talk about percentages of your body. You know, like you have tattoos on both shoulders, on your arms. You know, what drove you to do that level of body art? That's funny because I feel like actually up until recently, I had very inconspicuous tattoos. Like I had, you know, my legs and my upper arms and my chest. And then I just, whenever I have an off season, I get a tattoo just because I have time for it to heal a little bit better. So I just got one like a week ago. Um, but I don't know. I grew up in skateboard culture like that, that. I grew up in like skateboard and like kind of punk culture where that was just kind of the look. And I've always really liked that. I mean, you know, the first question people ask you when you get a tattoo is like, Oh, what does it mean? And to be perfectly honest, none of mine really mean anything. It's just, it's like anything like artwork that you just like the way it looks or you appreciate the artist that did it. And so like, I'm not going for any sort of deep meaning with most of them. There's just an aesthetic that, that I like. And plus, I mean, you look at my family, my dad has a full sleeve and a half sleeve. My sister almost has two full sleeves. We had a greyhound whose racing number was tattooed to the inside of his ear. It's like, it runs deep, but um, you know, I, I saw the comment before, so I actually did count. 
And individually, I have 15, but like four of them make up a sleeve. And then like one of them is an entire upper leg piece. And then two of them are a chest piece. So it's like they're, they, that's why I talk about percentage because they wind up just being like one very large tattoo. But I, I think I'm almost at my limit, you know, like I, I don't want to be completely covered. That's just not the aesthetic that I'm going for. Is there an age where you can't, you should, you probably shouldn't get another tattoo? Like F that, who, who cares? Get it whenever. I think, I think old people, they like had tattoos when they were young and now they like look bad. I even think that looks pretty badass. If I'm like old enough, I mean, I will be old and have a bunch of tattoos that look bad and I'll think that I look badass. So do what you want. So let's get back to UCI racing because I feel like that is what people are going to be, you know, interested in here. And the thing, you know, when you look at this trip to Europe, you have a full-time day job. Bike racing does not pay a salary for you. What do you actually do for a living? I work for fast cat coaching. So it's still, you know, in the world of cycling and I get to use, you know, what I learn and, and apply it to other people. But, um, but it very much, it feels different. It doesn't feel like I'm cycling all the time. It's like nice to just work with people. You know, when you're over there in Europe, do you have the capacity to continue to do your day job at a hundred percent? Yeah. I mean, I didn't take any time off for it. Like I warned all my athletes, just like, listen, the meetings are going to be limited just because like their time, I only can really work from like 7 PM until midnight. And so that's what I did was like, if I had calls, they were after seven o'clock. Um, and then I tried to do, you know, other little stuff, you know, I, I was proactive and got a lot of like work done before that. But in terms of the calls and stuff, like I still took every call that I had on my calendar. I didn't really block off too much. Um, and yeah, you just do them through zoom and, or even on the phone, you know, just do it like over Wi-Fi. And yeah. We had like a whole setup when, you know, with the house, everyone was pretty much working the entire time. And I find that to be amazing. When I saw that table at the team camp of all the guys before we would go out and ride every day, you know, it was basically Olenicek's company, just having a team meeting for the first time in person around a kitchen table. But like it was business, 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 change, get on bikes, go. And then business again, sort of thing. It, the question or the point I'm trying to make here is about this idea of the wear and tear on an American-based bike racer by going to Europe. Certainly, there are bike racers who are Americans who survive and live well in Europe. Joe Dombrowski, for example. He's an incredible bike racer, does very well in Europe, and, and he lives over in, I think, Nice most of the time. You know, you've got Sepkus and, you know, the classic cadre of Americans who are at the world tour level. But then you've got everybody else, the human powered health folks who are pro teams, who, you know, spend some time here and then some time over there. Those people are all making minimum salaries within the confines of bike racing. They are all doing it exclusively. You know, we have to go back to, you know, reminding ourselves of what Adam Meyerson taught us a year and a half ago about the structure of bike racing in the United States and in professionally, you know, the only two in the men's side categories of bike racers that are guaranteed pay are world tour professionals. And then the pro teams, continental pros are not guaranteed pay. They are guaranteed a contract, but the contract can have a fat zero in the dollar number. 
which I think we need to have a healthy conversation about finances and bike racing. There is, in my opinion, no pro road racing in the United States. There are pro road racers, but there is no European style pro road racing that happens in the United States where somebody can live exclusively as a bike racer in the United States in road. Maybe gravel, maybe the top five, six guys in cross. I don't know. But, you know, first off, before I get deep into numbers here, because I did my math and did my homework, do you agree with that assessment that there is no pro road racing in the United States? Yeah, I mean, if we're defining pro road racing, the, the racing itself, you know, that that is the only thing you do and that that is paying your salary, then like, yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, like you said, there's pro level racers, there's UCI races, but can we make a living off that? No, absolutely not. Especially if you're a crit racer. Domestic elite teams are just domestic elite teams. There is no UCI agreement there. A domestic elite team is a thing within the confines of the of USA Cycling. And, you know, I think it cost it back the last time I was on a domestic elite team, it cost $600 to become one for the team. So it's great. Cool. But when I forgot at team camp and when you're on these trips, who controls the remote control for the team? You're watching TV. Who's who's in charge? Air, me? I don't know. Probably. Who's the person who kept putting Drive to Survive on? Oh, gosh. Pro I don't know. Probably Peter, maybe. Because the reason I ask about it is I am, and I told you this, uh, you know, when we were getting ready for this, you know, I'm addicted to the documentary Welcome to Wrexham. The Ryan Reynolds, Rob McElhenney, they bought a Welsh soccer team. And they are trying to turn it around. And I'm addicted to it. And I want to get all the guys on Project Echelon addicted to it as well. So this is my goal, is to, is to get control of the remote control because I cannot identify with Daniel Ricardo. I'm sorry. I just don't get him. He, he drives me nuts. And like yeah. I love Lewis Hamilton's style, especially his choice in watches. But I just like... I'm not there with him yet. It's hard to relate to anyone that's making $20 million a year. <laughs> 100%. And so with Wrexham, with the football team well, in Welcome to Wrexham, it's a real thing. So these are all statistics, in fact, that you can look up. English football is divided into a series of categories uh, similar to bike racing is world tour, pro road tour, UCI continental. You know, with English Soccer, it is the Premier League, which is all the teams that you and I know and love, Man United, Arsenal, Chelsea, Fulham, all of them. You've got a league down, the Champions League, which is the league that nobody wants to be demoted into, to be relegated into. But then there are two other leagues beneath that, League One and League Two. That makes up the English Football League. Below the English Football League, there are the other folks you know, like the NBA D League, the the N, the National Basketball Association League that plays on the side of the hill. The Canadian Football League, yeah. Yeah. Wrexham exists in the fifth tier. They're in the National League, which is the bottom professional, quote-unquote, professional league. Everything else below that is considered semi-pro or amateur. Wrexham, at the National League level, outside of the English Football League proper, is the final league where guys are actually getting paid a salary enough to survive. And so I went and I pulled up the numbers 
on salaries just so that we have an understanding of how much we're looking at and we can start comparing apples to apples, oranges to oranges, apples and oranges, whatever it happens to be. The English Premier League's obscene as far as yearly salaries go. The the median team, Aston Villa, which is a good team, but they're just like right smack in the middle, is $2.7 million a year. Is the average salary? Jeez. It's all written in pounds. And so I did the conversion today, which is like, I think, $1.14 per one pound. So, And I also did the conversion for euros when we talk about that. Brentford, which is the cheapest team in the English Premier League, is $720,000-ish a year for a salary. Chelsea, Man United, Man City, the teams who are at the top, they're like up in the seven and a half, eight million dollar range. I mean, it's ridiculous amounts of money. And you've got the superstars, you know, in the other leagues who are making 25, 30 million dollars a year, like Lewis Hamilton in F1. You start to descend down the levels from Premier League to Champion to League One to League Two, you know, and the dollars keep getting cut off. And so, like, with Champion League, you know, teams, it's like $2 million per year for an average player. They divide it into uh, into pounds per week. I don't understand why that is, but it's all transparent. Unlike cycling, everybody knows how much everybody's making. In bike racing, before I get into the National League, in bike racing, do you know how much other people are making? No, no. Like, do you know what American teams are actually like American crit racing, domestic elite, U.S. Conti pro teams? What teams are paying the riders? Is that like a fact that's known? No, there's always just it's always just smoke and mirrors. And everyone's like, oh, I heard that guy's making X amount. And it's really never that impressive. We're like, that guy's making thirty thousand dollars. And he's like, whoa, holy crap. Like, that's poverty. And then, you know, there and then there's people that everyone probably thinks is making money and they probably don't get paid at all. I and mean, they're probably embarrassed to say they don't get paid, you know? So that's what it's all about. I love that you threw out the number $30,000 a year because that could serve like, as like, as far as 2022 is concerned, I know of no American crit racer who is making $30,000. Yeah. Like that's unheard of in crit racing. Maybe some people were making in the twenties. I don't know. And you know, like honestly, like $30,000 is still like, I guess it's fine amount of money. Like plenty of people live up there. And like, that's great. Like I probably don't spend much more than that, but like realistically it's, it's more like that guy's making $7,000. And it's like, you know, if it was my team and you know, if Eric was like, Hey, I want to pay you $6,000. I'd be like, give it to some younger guy, <laughs> you know, something like that. I'm like, I'll be fine. Trust me. I'll be okay. You know, give it to someone else. Even at the lowest level, the lowest professional level within the Europe, within the English soccer leagues, so the the national league, that fifth tier down, the men in that league are median salary eighty eight thousand dollars a year. It's a great salary that for for living in Northwest Wales. I think that's an awesome salary. You know, like when I graduated from law school and I bought my first condo in D.C. I was making $60,000 a year as a lawyer. I thought I was living pretty good. Like at 60,000, I could, you know, afford a 500 square foot condo and also buy the non-cheap peanut butter. That's when I knew I had made it. Mm -hmm. In bike racing, if you look at the UCI, the pro teams and the world tour teams have minimum salaries. In 2022, 
it was, um, and it gets a little weird because you can be considered an independent contractor and take a bigger salary, or you can be considered an employee and take a smaller salary, mm. but you get benefits. So for, you know, the employee, the minimum salary was 40,000 for a independent contractor. It was 63,000, which is pretty good money. It's not terrible. Yeah. Most domestiques on a, on a, you know, world tour team are making like between a hundred and two and 400,000. Like you've got outliers like Sagan and Pogachar and Froome who are in the several million dollar ranges. But like we are in a sport where the best people in the sport, you know, the best quote unquote run of the mill athletes. So the domestics, the guys who are doing the, the grunt work are getting paid what the bottom rung people are getting paid in football, in English football. You know, like that's a conversation that I don't know. Have we ever had before? No, I mean, like I want to justify it in such a way that's like, oh, soccer is a part of culture and heritage, but like, so is cycling. But to be perfectly honest, this is going to sound brutal and I don't know how to make it not sound like it, but like cycling is kind of like a peasant sport almost like if in, I don't necessarily mean it like that, but like, I feel like maybe like cycling was just like not a sport of the upper class and maybe like soccer was, and that's why the sponsors are more attracted to it. Like maybe it's something that it's just like the actual sport itself. I mean, soccer's a pretty fast moving game and there's a lot of satisfaction in them scoring goals like instant gratification almost opposed to cycling that you're waiting five hours for them to ride up a hill for 30 minutes and finish and like yeah i love watching cycling and i think it's exciting but it, it's not the same thing and then you compare it to like american basketball where they're scoring a point every 30 seconds it's like you know the difference in those and it, it comes down to viewership and sponsor dollars and stuff so it's like what do people want to see and especially when the expectation for the Tour de France for a hundred years is that you can go for free and watch it on the side of the road. Why, why are people going to suddenly be like, Oh, I want to pay to watch this. It's like, no, this is El Tuez. It's an open road. I can go camp out here for a week. So we've never set that expectation. And then maybe if anyone ever has, then they're like, Oh, that's taking away from the spirit of cycling or like, you know, cycling's heritage. And, and so you're like, okay, so we're never going to monetize this sport in the way that, makes it sustainable. The one thing though, that I think is interesting. So you mentioned basketball. I don't have statistics on basketball, but I've got statistics on baseball. The most interesting way to fall asleep on the North side in a very expensive seat is watching baseball. I think we can all agree, right? <laughs> uh, I loved going to Cubs games, but more importantly, I loved watching Cubs games on TV and then watching them find the fan who's asleep by the fourth inning. <laughs> <laughs> so baseball is cultural for the United States. That's what we've been told and we've been led to believe. The average salary for a baseball player in 2022 is $4.4 .4 million. Jeez. I know that's mind boggling dollars. Baseball actually has the players association actually has a minimum salary and the minimum salary in 2022 was 700,000. But What's weird, and I'm going to go back to the $30,000, that, that $30,000 number that you mentioned, that dollar number that we have right now, 4.4 million or 700,000 is an aberration. 
It is not an aberration over the last five years, but it is an aberration over the history of the sport. If you dial back the way back machine to 1980, you will get a minimum salary of $30,000 a year, and you will get an average salary of 143. Something happened from 1990 to 1995 where salaries doubled within the Major League Baseball. It was always a good living. I mean, like Babe Ruth and Ted Williams and, and Hank Aaron, these guys made good money, but you know, those were the top guys on the sport. Let's talk about the obscure people who who you, you know, like Ron Santo. He's a Hall of Famer, but like not too many people outside of the Chicago Cubs are gonna know who he is. You know, he would have been making thirty thousand dollars a year. And like that's where we are now mm-hmm. in bike racing. We are at a point where we are making, for those of us who are lucky enough to have a salary, you know, making a modest amount of money. But that doesn't mean that it has to be there and be the only way that we're going to do it forever. There is no players association for bike racers. Not really. No. I'm wondering if that's where we start. You know, who speaks for bike racers right now? Is it is it you, Ricky? Are you, you know, the guy who speaks for bike racers or? No, they don't want me. <laughs> How do we as bike racers in a sport where everybody is always talking about not having enough money, say, if you want to raise the standards for what you've got, you you need to put skin in the game and give people who are participating as your entertainers the cash that their time deserves? Or are we not there yet? No, we're not. I mean, I think I, I'm going to talk about like cycling at like the top level, like the world tour riders. And we've seen this, we've seen articles about riders having to pay their way on these pro continental teams. And to be perfectly honest, I would not be surprised if that exists for people somewhere in the world tour level. So if we're not going to have any respect for ourselves, then it's hard to make the change to a sport as a whole. I mean, you know how many guys would race in the world tour for free? Like, you know how many continental riders where it's like, Hey, you want to, you want to pay $10,000 to race for a team? You know, how many would be like hundred percent. I would do that. And that's just because the sport is just so small and it's just anyone would, you know, to get a chance at the shot at like a big shot at like a big team, anyone would take it. So it's like, maybe it's not, self-respect it's just like desperation almost because the opportunities are so limited and so it's you know when you have the opportunity it's like i would guarantee you that someone would not they would be on a continental team getting paid fifty thousand dollars they would ride for free on a world tour team i guarantee you they would ride on the world tour team why why (laughs) like that's nuts i mean like it's it's like a weird level of prestige and just like I don't know. Cyclists are very, very weird creatures. Like we have like, maybe it is like the heritage of the sport that everyone wants to do something like the tour de France and just to do it itself would be like, Oh, I've achieved what I set out to achieve. Like I'm feeling very fulfilled. And like, I'm partially making fun of that, but like, I believe that in some levels, I mean, I've been doing this for a long time for free. So I wouldn't, you know, I understand what that's like. I wanted to, I raced for free for years just to go do tour heal it to get my teeth kicked in. And I was like, holy crap, that was the coolest thing ever. I just got to race it. So imagine people getting an opportunity to race in the biggest race in the world. You bet your ass most of them would do it for free. What motivates 
you to do that because what you just said there, I paid basically to go to Gila to get beaten up by other stronger riders. I did the exact same thing this year. I went to New York City, paid my own entry, paid for my hotel or, you know, the gas and all of that stuff to finish 45th and and for, I don't know, it was a 60 minute race for at least 40% of that race. I was absolutely fundamentally miserable. And I drove away and I was just like, that was an excellent use of time, money and resources. Why are we like that? You know, like everyone's going to get all up in arms with me saying this, but I believe that cycling is the hardest sport in the world. And maybe I haven't tried a lot of other sports, but physically, like tactically, mentally, like it is a very challenging sport. So you have a select group of people that are stupid enough to sacrifice a lot to do it. So I think the way we're, we're wired is like, we're like, I'm already this far. Like I've already paid a coach for five years and I've, you know, gone, not gone to 10 weddings, you know, like at this point we're like, I might as well see how far I can get in the sport kind of thing. You know, it's like, I think everyone is just looking for how far they can push themselves. And maybe it's the, 10 seconds of satisfaction when you win, which is incredible, which keeps pulling you back. I mean, maybe that's it. I always say, if you don't show up to a race thinking that you, like there's not that little opportunity that you're like, I could win this race. Like if no, if you don't feel like that, I think it's weird to even go to these races because A, they're too dangerous and B, it just takes too much out of you. So it's like everyone, I think just wants also that little moment of feeling what it's like to win and just seeing how far you can take it. Do you visualize yourself winning even to this day? Sure. Yeah, 100%. Like you went to Green Mountain this year. You know, you visualize yourself crossing the finish line first. Sure. You know, like I, I think, I don't know, it sounds, <laughs> sounds kind of arrogant when you say it. But yeah, I think, I think visualization is good. I think, I think you have to be confident that you could win. You know, even if you're going to a race in Europe where you're like totally in over your head, if you can't just like see that, then I don't know that. You could say it's sad then that you don't win, but I think it's sad if you don't think you can win and you're showing up anyways. Not to say that people shouldn't just go up and show up at races if they're having fun. If you're having fun, like, hell yeah, that's what it's all about. And I have fun doing it, but I also show up wanting to win, you know, any race. Do you think when all is said and done, and I know you're one of those guys who the moment that you are no longer competitive, you're hanging it up, you're done. You're not going to be like me, you know, scratching it out in the master's field, are you? No. <laughs> I'm going to go to the gym, get yoked, and ride a mountain bike. And, you know, like, I don't understand that, but I sit here and I'm just like, you know what? You're right. You're right. That's what you That's what you are going to do, and I have no problem with that. Like, my good friend Curtis Windsor, exact same situation. He's just like, okay, I did my time on Kenda and Smart Stop. And uh, I'm not going another step higher. I'm done. And I'm just like, but you love this sport. Yeah, I absolutely adore this sport, but I am done. And like, then there are guys like me who just can't get enough of it. Like, you know, we're racing for town line sprints on Saturday morning group rides. But when all is said and done and you pack up the bike for the final time, you hang it on the wall and you're heading to, you know, no judgments gym will you have any regret about all the things that you didn't do because you were chasing this dream no no i mean that's the 
that's the thing is like you i feel like that goes through everyone's mind at least if they've been doing it like maybe as long as i have um but no because i think i found out a lot about myself like in the process like if i can apply myself to anything else in life like i've applied myself to cycling then i'll be just fine um the key is to be able to find that thing that i can apply myself to that i feel the same way as i do about cycling and i feel like that's what most people struggle with and you know i i don't think i will ever give up riding the bike or just you know going on group rides with friends and stuff like half of it is just that I, I'm at a level and I train in such a way that like to continue to do this would require me to continue to be fully committed to it. And then the fact that like, if I'm not at the level that I am now, am I just going to be disappointed? So, I mean, I want to be like in a place where, I mean, I'll probably be involved with cycling for, for a while, but I want to be in a place where, yeah, like I'm totally cool with it and, you know, not have any regrets about what I did off the bike and also not have any regrets about what I didn't do or didn't do on the bike, you know, all of that kind of factors in. And I think I've told this to people before. It's like, I mean, I'm not young, but it's like, I still have things that I think I can achieve in the sport and that I want to achieve. And maybe I will. And maybe I won't. Like, I think it'll be very clear when I'm done. Maybe it's a year, maybe it's two. I don't know. So I'm not going to ask you the stupid question of what's going to happen next year or what happens next or whatever, because I'm not done with you in any way, shape or form with this interview. You know, but this is the final question for for us for tonight. You know, like you and it's something you just brought up. You learned things about yourself through this sport. Let's look at this year, just this year. Give me three things that you learned about yourself this year that you didn't know coming into 2022. Well, I mean, I think maybe a reaffirmation of um just, you know, mental fortitude and toughness. Cause like, you know, I've, I've gone through shit. I've been hit by cars and stuff. I've had setbacks and injuries and things like that. And so dealing with, you know, all the stuff I dealt with at the beginning of the year and not having the season that I thought, and then turning it around and maybe not having, you know, the best season in the world, but still being able to you know, um, help a team success and, and have my own, like along the way, like, that's great. And like, you know, being happy with that is something where I'm like, yeah, like, being happy with not, you know, a perfect year or not having a win, you know, even in a year, like that's something that I need to remind myself constantly because especially when things are going really well for a long time, you forget how quickly they can go south and then your whole world can collapse. I mean, secondly, like I'm constantly reminded of how lucky I am to be able to do this and to be able to do it around people that I really like. I guarantee you, no teams in the U S like each other, like our team does. It's like, most of them are my best friends. And so to be able to travel around with them and not just completely fucking hate them is important to me. And like, I like to remind myself and especially because there's going to be guys that are gone next year that I've spent the last five years with, you know, to be able to spend the year with them and see them only, even if it was only for a race is like, it's something really great. I guess it's not really learning much about myself, but yeah, it's just like appreciating them, you know? And then I think like, finally, it's just like to know when to step back, know when to take a break and things like that. And like knowing yourself well enough to know that if you do, you know, take a step back, take a breather or whatever, like you're going to be okay in the long run. It's like, it's still just, it's still just riding bikes. Like half the time you have to remind yourself that you're just riding bikes and this is supposed to be fun. I think Okay, Sarah Sturm, she started, um, she made these hats <laughs> and, uh, and was handing them out, I think at Leadville, maybe, maybe at Steamboat. 
and they all, they just said this is supposed to be fun. And I think that's like a very poignant comment because I think most of us lose at that like that aspect. And the funny thing is, like I tell everyone that I coach, like the moment it doesn't become fun, you shouldn't be doing it anymore. <laughs> and there was plenty of moments where I was not having fun this year. And like I had to take a step back and it's like, am I enjoying doing this? And like in the long run, it's like, yeah, like I love doing it. So, you know, to just, as always, not to get all mushy and stuff, but to have perspective, you know, on everything. It's always a good thing. Well, Ricky, thanks so much for taking the time to sit down and talk with us today. And we'll figure out what happens next soon. Thank you, Rob. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the show. We are a proud part of the Wide Angle Podium network of shows. WideAnglePodium.com. You can find out about the full bevy of shows available on the network. Today's episode was written, produced, and edited by me, Rob Kelly. Special thanks go out to Ricky Arnopel for not throwing away his shot. Callback, getting good at these sort of things. Next episode will be our 100th episode of the show. It'll feature our senior women's correspondent, Celine Oberholzer, and our senior men's correspondent, Alan Schroeder. We will be doing a special storytellers episode where we take your responses from a recent poll about what we, the American road racing scene, can do better to make this a more inclusive, more welcoming, more wonderful, more progressive, more well-run sport. So join us here again next time for more stories from our Criterium Nation.